Okay, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Acts chapter 8. And it's this story of God using this, this guy named Philip to go and share about Jesus with this eunuch who works for the, the queen of Ethiopia. And it's one of my favorite stories simply because of this. The, the story ends with Philip being teleported to another place. Like God literally teleports him to another town to share the gospel. And, and that just became one of my favorite stories because I'm holding out hope that God will give us some teleportation powers, right? Like I'm just going, okay, this is on the table, God. Like I've seen you do it. Now I want teleportation powers for your name, of course. For your name, I want your, these teleportation powers. And so uh, it, it's become one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But anyways, this is a story about God directing this guy, Philip, to this random road where this eunuch who serves this queen of Ethiopia is riding on a chariot and he's reading the Bible and, and Philip goes up to him. In fact, I actually want to read from it. It's in Acts chapter 8. It's uh, verse 30 is where we'll start. And it says this, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, can we, let's stop for a second. Can we just be jealous of this evangelistic opportunity here, right? Like, God guides Philip to this place. He guides him over to this chariot area. The guy is already reading the Bible, and the guy's going, what does this mean, right? Like, help me understand what this means, right? Meanwhile, when people find out I'm a Christian over the course of my life, they go, why aren't dinosaurs in the Bible, right? Like, that's what happens to me. And if you want the good apologetic responses, there's no giraffes in the Bible either, and it stumps them. But anyways, um, the story keeps going. Verse 32. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The, the passage that the eunuch was reading was from Isaiah 53. And if you don't know this, Isaiah 53, it is one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. It's certainly one of the most famous passages in Isaiah itself. When I tell other people, hey, our, ser- our church is going through this series right now where we're, we're talking through chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah and we're calling it this Servant King series, they right away go, oh, Isaiah 53. I love Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this very famous passage in the whole Bible, and today in our series, we're getting to Isaiah 52 and 53 in this series, where we have been looking at this long poem and these poems within poems in chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah. And here's what's interesting about Isaiah 53. We've been hearing about this servant in this series. In fact, we've called this series the servant king because throughout these poems in 40 through 55 of Isaiah, this servant keeps getting mentioned, this servant that's going to come along and restore all things, this servant that's going to come along and do a specific and unique work of God. He's going to do a work that no one like him could do before. We've been hearing a lot about this servant, and Isaiah 53 talks a ton about what this servant's work will look like. And what's interesting about that is the New Testament authors, 
they linked the servant to Jesus. So when the, the Israelites were first reading this and they were first hearing this from Isaiah 53, they're going, I don't, who, who is this servant? Who's God going to send? But then when we get to the New Testament authors who saw the life of Jesus, saw the work of Jesus, saw how Jesus identified himself as the servant, the New Testament authors began to go, the servant in Isaiah, this guy who's going to come and restore everything and fix everything, that's Jesus. And so Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus. Isaiah 52 even, what's interesting about Isaiah 52 where we'll be at is it's the first time the, the, the idea of God's work in the world being proclaimed is called the good news. If you look at Isaiah 52, 7, it calls the, the work of the one who's proclaiming all of this good work of God, it calls that good news or a good announcement which we know got translated into Greek as evangelion, which we know in English as gospel, good news. In fact, so much so, an uh, early church father named Jerome, uh, probably 400 years after Jesus, he was talking about Isaiah one time, or he wrote a commentary on Isaiah, and he said, yes, Isaiah is a prophet, but not only that, he's an evangelist. And it's probably because of verse 52.7. And so in Isaiah 52 and 53, we get this picture of the good news and the servant who is carrying out the work that this good news proclaims. And we see how God is specifically going to use a suffering servant to do it. And so Isaiah 52 and 53 is this good news proclamation of the work of the servant that, that w is going to happen that will restore everything. And so that's where we're going to be today. So here, here's, what we're, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see two big questions, two big questions that God answers through Isaiah 52 and 53. The first question that God's going to answer, answer through these chapters is, why does God send the servant, okay, who we know to be Jesus? Why does God send the servant at all? Why? Why do we need the servant? Okay, that's question one. Question two, what is the servant like will be the second question that gets answered from Isaiah 52 and 53. What is he like? Well, how can he be described? Who is he? What kind of person is he? And we'll see that Isaiah 52 and 53 answers that question. And we know that it's not just some far off idea, but it's actually who, he, who Jesus is, is what Isaiah 52 and 53 is describing. So that's where we're heading. First question, why did God send the servant? Second question, what is the servant like according to Isaiah 52 and 53? So my goal today is this. I really just want the words of Isaiah 52 and 53 to kind of just wash over us. I just want us to hear those words. I just want them to sink in. I just want us to see how beautiful God is and his work is in this world by just looking at these ancient poems and understanding them. And, and the reason that's my goal, that, uh, that I just want the, these words to wash over us, is I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, I don't know if I could do these chapters justice. As I'm studying for this uh, sermon and as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm looking at these passages and I know these are the passages, right? Like when I meet other pastors, they're like, oh, Isaiah 53. And I, as I'm studying and looking at it and I'm seeing all the beauty, I'm just feeling inadequate to explain it very well. I'm like, as a preacher, I'm like, I want to pull out all the stops, give all the great illustrations. And I'm just, as I'm approaching the text, I'm just like, I don't, I fall short. I don't know if I can do that well. And so my hope is that we would just actually just look at the words, 
understand what these words are saying but through answering those two questions and that our hearts would just be stirred to worship, to understand God more, to be thankful for what he's doing. And so I, would, I legitimately, I encourage you, pray as we go. As we're going through this text together, pray. Pray that God would open your eyes. Pray that God would open others' eyes to who he is and what he's doing and why we need the servant, okay? So let's hop into this first question. I'm going to take a drink. The first question is this, why does God send the servant? And I, I tricked you guys, I said there's only like kind of two points we're going through, each point has a few answers. So that's how you trick your congregation and think you only have two points. And so for th this question, why does God send the servant, we're going to at least talk about four different answers. Uh, let's start with the first one by reading Isaiah 52, the, the first couple of verses of Isaiah 52. It says this, awake, awake. Zion, or, or the Israelites, is how God calls them. Clothe, clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. Daughter Zion, now a captive. Well, you have to remember, and I'm going to remind you of this every week, Israel, who's being spoken to in Isaiah, they are in exile, which means they have been displaced by another country, and another country rules over them. And so that is the, the context for these words. God is speaking to his people who are exiled, have been displaced. Some are still in their land, but it's only the poorest among them, and their land is, is really run to ruins at this point. But most of them have been displaced, and they've been made servants in other places. And so this is where these words come about in that kind of context. But what I think we see in these first couple of verses is the first reason why God sends the servant, why God sends this person on a special mission to restore everything, to restore his people. And it's this, because God loves and treasures his people. That's what the, the poetry of these first couple of verses show, that God loves and treasures his people. He uses this imagery in the opening lines of Isaiah 52 of, of honor, like he wants to honor this people that have been exiled. He, he uses this imagery of making them royalty, all of them royalty, even though they are not royalty, even though what they're experiencing right there in their life and history is the opposite of royalty, and then he also, he once again, he calls Israel his daughter. All throughout this poem, God wants to remind his people that he is like a good father. He sees them like his daughter. God so treasures his people that he wants to robe them with the holy robes that the priests get. God so treasures his people that he wants them sitting on thrones, not stools. And God so loves his people that they aren't just simply his people called for a task, they are his daughter. I, I can never tell you guys enough, God loves you. God loves you like a good father loves his daughter. I hope I never stop telling you that because in this series, it's become apparent to me once again how much God wants to communicate that message to us. He treasures us. He loves us. God loves you like a good father loves his daughter. 
And so the first reason why God sends this servant to restore all things is because he loves you. He has to save his daughter who he treasures. Okay, look at the next reason uh, the servant comes. It's in, in verses 3 through 5. The second reason God sends the servant. This is what it says. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. The second reason, the second reason God sends the servant to earth to restore all things is because we all need to be redeemed. We all need to be rescued. In, in the Bible, there's this great redemption story, and it's the Exodus. There's actually a couple. Ruth is also the great, a great redemption story in the Bible. But the great redemption story in the Bible is the Exodus, and it's the story of God seeing that his people are enslaved, hearing their blood cry out to him and saying, I can't abide by that anymore. I must use my strong arm of salvation to redeem them. I must, must rescue them at a cost to myself. And so that's kind of the connotation of this word redeem, this name of our church. And now the Israelites, they find themselves in a similar situation as the people of Israel did when they were in the Exodus. They, now it's not Egypt, but it's instead Assyria, the poem notes. And they need God's redeeming hand. But remember, Israel is always just a picture of what God wants to do with the whole world. Israel is always there to show us who, who God is, what his heart is towards all of his creation. They're really supposed there to show us everything about God and be a light uh, pointing to him. And so it's not just the Israelites that in this moment need redemption. What they are showing us as we read this, however many years later, 2,700 or so years later, is that we, the world, the world itself needs redemption. That's why God sends a servant. The world is ruled by this power of sin. The way the Bible talks about sin is not just wrong moral actions, although that is how the Bible talks about sin, but it also talks about sin being this very power that rules the world, that oppresses us. But not only does it oppress us, it infects us with its disease. And not only does it oppress us and infect us, but sin enslaves us. We all need to be rescued from the power of sin, from the oppressor that sin is. Sin is what causes all the pain, death, and misery in the world. The servant needs to come because humanity needs to be redeemed. We need to be rescued. And what this poem shows us is the servant, he is the great redeemer. He is going to be doing the work of redemption, okay? Okay, third, third reason. Third reason the servant is needed is this, because we are all like sheep. We are all like sheep. Let me read verse 6 of Isaiah 53. Verse 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
sadly, one of the, one of the effects of sin on the, on the human heart is it causes us to walk away from God and to choose our own way, choose our own way of doing things. In reality, you and I, we were created to walk with God. But sin makes it so we just don't. Sin makes it so we just don't even want to or have the desire to. Sin makes it so that we even rebel against the idea of ever walking with God at all. Sin makes it so that we are sure that our way of life is better than God's way of life. I really, when I read this verse, I, I, I feel like it really resonates with me. There have been seasons in, in my life where that is definitely what I'm thinking. I, I wish I could be like, yeah, and it's not so obvious. Like I'm really consciously thinking I, I know better than God. But if I'm looking deep down at my thoughts and my heart, deep down, that is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I do know better than him. I know a better way for my life than God does. And often in those seasons of my life, I see my heart's draw to my own way of life rather than to his way of life. And so when I read verse 6 of Isaiah 53, I go, man, that sounds like me. And so Israel, Israel needed the servant because they had gone their own way. You and I need the servant because we go our own way so often. We need to be reminded that we are, we're made to walk with God, not walk away from him. And so the servant comes to make a way for us to walk with God again. And so that our hearts don't go our own ways. So that's the third reason we need the servant. Uh, the fourth reason. fourth reason we need the servant is this. The fourth reason God sends the servant is this. Our iniquities... Our iniquities are too heavy for us. Our iniquities are too heavy for us. Three times in Isaiah 53, this word iniquities is used. We just read one of them. Another one of them is in verse 5, and another time it's used is in verse 11. This word iniquities. What I love about the Old Testament is the Old Testament has very robust views of all sorts of things because it used multiple words with multiple meanings to describe something. And sin is one of those things. I think I spit on my own glasses. I'm sorry. Um... Sin is one of those things that the Old Testament uses multiple words to describe so you can kind of get the full picture of what sin is and how it works in this world. And one of those words that's used very often to describe sin and what it is is iniquity. Iniquities, which just kind of sounds like this old school or churchy word. But in the Hebrew, this word iniquity, in Hebrew it's avon. And avon it has this meaning of like crookedness or bentness. That's what it means, like almost like literally in the Hebrew. It's like crookedness or bentness. And this is one of the words that as you read the Old Testament, you're going to see time and time again describe what sin is. And Isaiah 53 uses this word three times. And the idea is really kind of this, like one of the things sin does is it just like makes us crooked. It makes us bent, almost like this picture of like you're bent in on yourself almost. Like sin makes you crooked, and that crookedness leads to all sorts of crookedness in the world. That's kind of the connotation of, of, of iniquities. In fact, it like, it like it makes you live crookedly. 
Live not the, not the way that God would have for you. So like iniquities would be, would be pointing out things like we, we, we lie when we should tell the truth. We're greedy when there's people in need. We murder instead of give life. And so iniquity is humanity's crookedness or bentness. And iniquity is even how iniquity itself as a power in this world uh, makes this world even more crooked. How else the Old Testament talks about this word iniquity is very interesting. It kind of talks about how our iniquities, we have to bear them. Like almost like God is saying, okay, your iniquities, you have to bear it. You're going to have to bear your iniquities. You're going to have to carry your iniquities. You're going to have to almost like bear the consequences of your iniquities. You as a people, he says to the people of Israel all throughout Old Testament, you're going to have to carry your own iniquities. But then, when the biblical authors also talk about God's forgiveness, they often liken God's forgiveness or describe God's forgiveness as him, as God, carrying our iniquities. In other words, God is carrying the consequences of our crookedness in this world. God is putting those, thing on, those things on his back and taking them off of ours. That's the picture of forgiveness often in the Old Testament. You and I and the Israelites needed the servant because our iniquities are too heavy for us. None of us are strong enough to carry the consequences of our sin. None of us are strong enough to carry the consequences of our crookedness, of our bentness. In fact, it's almost like we all have this condition where our backs are just automatically bent because of our iniquities. And so part of why God sends this servant is he, he needs to send someone who's strong enough to carry our iniquities. When we carry our iniquity, it crushes us. And you see that in the Old Testament. It's kind of this picture of like, when you carry your iniquity, it crushes you. But God is strong enough to carry it. His servant is strong enough to carry it. And so that, that's the... The fourth reason why God sends the servant to carry our iniquities when we can't because we aren't strong enough to carry them. Okay, so those are all a bunch of reasons why God sends the servant. Now let's get into question two. What, what does Isaiah 52 and 53 say that the servant is like? What's he like? Now remember, we have the benefit of living on the other side of Jesus, we have the benefit of, of knowing who Isaiah 52 and 53 is like. The Israelites then, they're kind of, who is this? Or was it this person who kind of brought this partial restoration? Who is this person? We get the benefit of reading this poetry and seeing some beautiful lines of poetry that point out what the Gospels in the New Testament point out to us about Jesus when you watch his life. But what does Isaiah 52 and 53 say the servant is like? Let's take... A few minutes to look at that. The first thing, the first thing that Isaiah 52 and 53 show us the servant is like is he's not who you'd expect. He's not who you'd expect. Let me read, uh, I'm going to start in Isaiah 52, 13. I'm going to read through 53, 3. It says this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, the servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Let's pause there. The servant is not who you expect. That's what these opening verses are really the end of 52 and the opening of 53. He's not who you expect. It's like God is telling Israel, he's not going to look like what you think he's going to look like. Right away, he kind of does start off that way in verse 13 and 52 where God's servant is wise. He's lifted up high, exalted like a king, and yet some hate the sight of him. In fact, at some point in his ministry, he's going to be so disfigured that he's going to be grotesque to look at. Like he's going to be hurt. He's going to go through some sort of suffering where he looks grotesque when you look at him. What else it says is he's not someone, he's not someone you follow because he's beautiful. He's an average or below average looking person. It also says, yes, he is the salvation arm of the Lord at work. But even so, he's despised, he's rejected, and he's a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain. And then again, it tells us a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of people didn't like him. We didn't like him. We've been hearing so much in this series about this servant and what this servant can do and what this servant will do and the power of this servant and the wonder of this servant. And we get to this moment in the poem, which is the climatic moment really in the poem. And especially about the servant, it is the climatic moment about the servant. And so you get all these words and lines about the servant and you're probably getting excited, getting to read and go, and then wait, he's not who we expect. He's not who I envisioned the chosen one to be. He's not who I envisioned to come and save everyone. In fact, I'm surprised that he has to go through all of these things if he's God's chosen servant. He's a king that goes through suffering and is despised, and a lot of people don't like him. Jesus, the servant king, was not who the Israelites expected. He was not who they expected, but he was who Isaiah 53 said he would be. And I, honestly, I think if we didn't live in this moment in history and we weren't churchgoers and all that kind of stuff, like Jesus would not be who we expect either. Like the way that Jesus brought about God's work in the world, he would not be who we would expect. Jesus probably would offend a lot of us. A lot of us would probably be like, is he the guy? I don't know. Jesus would not be who we expect. God decided to use a very ordinary, average-looking man who would have to go through a lot of suffering in order to redeem us. Church, often you and I, we come up with a certain kind of Jesus that we want. He's the Jesus we expect. 
or maybe you're not a church person, you're here just visiting, checking this out. A lot of times what you do, when, you, when you're checking out Christianity, checking out church, you're, you're kind of coming with this expe- expectation like, well, hopefully I can get this or that out of this whole Christian thing or this whole church thing. But God's servant, as described in Isaiah 53, is not who you expect. So if you're looking for Jesus, if you're looking for God's chosen one, and you're looking for someone you expect, you might not find him. He's not who you expect. Not only does the servant stoop low to reach his creation, but he lets his creation put him even lower. Our servant king allows the iniquities of the world to crush him. The servant king Jesus is not who you would expect. Is what the poem shows us here. All right, the second characteristic, the second characteristic of what the servant is like is this. He is a suffering hero that, take, that steps in front of the bullet for us. He is a suffering hero that steps in front of the bullet for us. Or he is a sacrificial hero, as Isaiah 53 describes. I'm going to read, it's a long passage, 4 through 12, the rest of Isaiah 53, but you'll be okay. Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, we will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. The way that the servant is going to bring about the restoration that Isaiah 40 through 51 has been talking about is through suffering. By letting the iniquity of the world crush him. By letting the judgment of God be doled out on himself. That's how the servant is going to bring about the restoration. By letting the oppression of the world oppress him. By having an undignified death even though he had done no wrong. The the work of the servant king is a work of a great reversal. 
The servant king Jesus, he's full of goodness and he's full of life. And to get rid of all that is wrong in the world, he gives his goodness and life to the world while taking on the world's evil and suffering and oppression. I I was trying to think of ways to describe this. And the only way I could think of to describe what this suffering hero that takes the bullet for us, what this is like, I, I thought of someone like donating Donating a a kidney or donating their bone marrow to someone that they loved. And and the pain that comes with doing that and the loss for that person that comes with that. But even that kind of fails in comparison to showing what the servant does because Jesus has to donate all of his goodness, all of his life and take suffering and, and death upon himself to bring his loved one's life. The servant is a sufferer who in some spiritually cosmic way is absorbing all of the sin and evil and death in the universe while pouring out his own life and forgiveness to the world. The servant king is a sacrificial hero sufferer. The servant, he could have left us to our iniquity. He could have let the bullet hit us. But he steps in front of the bullet so we could have life. I, 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 as I was just studying this passage, I'm just like, I'm, I'm enamored with Jesus. I'm enamored because there's a lot of ways he could have done this. There's a lot of ways he could have saved us. He could have chose ways that related to us far less. He could have chose to not empathize with us, uh, with us as much. He could have chose not to step in our shoes as much, but he did choose all of that. He could have simply just come and said, hey, I'm enough. I am what you need. I created everything. Follow me or you're going to die. And that all would have been true. But instead, Jesus sees the problem with this world. He sees the problem with us. And he says, I got to get down there to stop the bullet from hitting them. I need to give them my life. He says, I need to be lifted up high on a cross and become disfigured so that the sin that is disfiguring disfiguring them stops disfiguring them. I need to come to a world that's going to reject me and oppress me and despise me so that their hearts can accept me and cherish me. I need to take their pain and suffering so they can get everlasting comfort. He says, I need to be their sin offering so they can approach God again. He says, I need to pour out my life to give them life. By the way, guys, this is what the cross is all about. This is what is happening to Jesus on the cross. This is why this passage is read at almost every Good Friday service. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross. This is what his suffering is doing. It's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. He is all of these things that Isaiah 53 is showing us about him. He is is absorbing. He is taking all of the world's evil in on himself so he could pour life back out to us. That's why we love the cross so much. That's why we talk about the cross so much. It is that act on the cross as he sheds out his blood that gives us life and forgiveness and redemption and restoration. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's done. That's the sort of king he is.
And honestly, this is the sort of king that I need. The one that Isaiah 52 and 53 describes. This is the sort of king I need because if I'm honest, sometimes it really does feel like the world is crushing me. Sometimes it feels like my own sin and mistakes and foolishness is crushing me. Sometimes my own despair is crushing me. Sometimes my own suffering is crushing me. And Jesus, the servant king, doesn't come along and say, get stronger, get stronger. Some of my friends do, and then I block them. But he doesn't come along and say, get stronger. He comes along and he says, let that crush me instead. Put that heavy load on my back instead, and it will never crush you again. And he seems to be the only king offering that. And he seems to be the only one that, that really knows what's wrong with me and wrong with this world and acknowledging it and saying, hey, I'm going to let those things fall on me instead of you. He's the only one willing to step into the world and let those things harm him to protect me. He's the only one willing to step in front of the bullet to save me. That's who our servant King Jesus is. That's who Isaiah 53 says that he is like. Jesus, our servant king, he serves us with his love. He serves us by absorbing all of the evil of this world. And he serves us by giving us goodness and life and forgiveness. Church, here, here are my takeaways for today. See your immense need for the servant King Jesus that Isaiah 52 and 53 show you in particular. See your immense need for him. You need him. You need the servant. And that servant is Jesus. The second thing, be okay that Jesus might be the savior you didn't expect to have. Be okay with that. Jesus might be the savior you did not expect to have. And then realize Jesus, the servant king, allowed the iniquities of the world to crush him so they don't crush us. To me, the servant king that Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about and describes and highlights our need for, he seems like the only king worth bowing to, to me at least. And so church, may we all bow to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, Thank you for the servant. Thank you for your son. Thank you for yourself. God, I pray that these words do exactly what I hope they would do. I hope they just pour over us, wash over us, stir our hearts to deep faith in you, stir our hearts to worship you. God, if there, if there are anybody in here today, God, that, that are not sure about you, not sure about your son, could you just do something by the work of your spirit to make them sure, to help them to turn to you, to help them to see how they need you, and that you are the antidote, that you are the thing that they need, that they've been looking for. God, thank you so much. I don't know completely why you did things this way, but it, it moves me, and it changes me, and it helps me me to see how much you love us. Help us all to see that this morning. Amen.